You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Welcome, Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leaders, to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. We're here for our third installation, talking about transforming truths, talking about God the Father and the relationship within the Trinity. Before we get rolling, we have a few announcements for you all, so I'll throw it over to Jay Fennell. Hey, group leaders. Just wanted to remind you of a few things. You know, we had Group Connect last Sunday. It was a good day. Hopefully you had a few visitors that that came by. Uh, If you didn't, uh, keep in mind that you probably will this Sunday. So the same level of hospitality that you gave to Group Connect last Sunday, you may want to also do that again this week. But one of the things I definitely want to encourage you to do is to follow up. Even if you had folks that were fringe members that came back, you invited them to come back to your class uh, this week or last week and they came, be sure to reach back out to them, follow up, tell them thank you for coming, re-engage them. And uh, you may, uh, you know, they may make coming to your group a habit once again. So you know, let's let's do the hard work of trying to, um, you know, reconnect with them to look for ways that we can minister to provide pastoral care through your life group. It's a really important thing to do: text, phone calls, emails, whatever it takes uh, to go after those people. Yeah, exactly. The personal touch, man. Nothing can nothing can resemble that, and that's really what makes people stick in our groups and grow together. We had our second theological roundtable. We had a great discussion over God's revelation, both in nature and the scripture, and then ultimately in Jesus Christ. We had a good time of technical discussion and also iron sharpening iron with life group leaders sharing with one another how they're going to present to their groups around roundtables. So Wednesday nights, 545 to 7 roughly, uh, 545 to 615 is the technical discussion, then 615 to 7, 715 we share with one another in small groups around the tables. I really encourage you to become a part of that, part of that practice and part of that training. Spring meetings will begin in February. Uh, We'll release a calendar where you can sign up and Jay and I are looking forward to having lunch with you, talking about how the previous year went, talking about vision for the upcoming year and the way we can serve you guys best. That's what we love to do and we're excited to see how we can partner up and having our people mature towards Christ-likeness. One of the things I love most about spring meetings, Paul, is just the opportunity to kind of hear about what God's doing in each group. And I know Paul's looking forward to it. We're excited about the opportunity to connect with you and to sit down over lunch or coffee or breakfast or whatever, whatever suits your schedule best to have some of those conversations. And sometimes there are even problems that come up or some challenges that you're facing, some, maybe some folks in the group or some issues related organizationally. And we love to sit down and kind of talk through some of those issues with you. Uh, so it's a good time one-on-one or one-on-two if you've got a few leaders that want to come. Uh, the coffee lunch is on us, and, and we want to we want to serve you and, and, and minister to you. Last announcement I wanted to mention is uh, Engage Middle Tennessee, April the 8th this year. It's a Saturday. Some of you p- participated in that last year. It was a great time. It was fun to uh, serve with people that we do life with, Uh, be in the community, uh, serve, uh, share the love of Jesus with people all around. And and so I want to encourage you to add that to your life group calendar. Uh, This year we'll have more information that will be rolling out in in the next uh, number of weeks. 
but definitely want you to get mobilized and get excited about opportunities that we'll have to uh, minister to people that are in Middle Tennessee that that uh, need ministry, uh, many of which are are, unchur- are unchurched. You know, you've heard our pastor say many times. Some say that Nashville is the buckle of the Bible Belt. No, there's uh, uh, what does he say, Paul? He says uh, he says there's no wonder our pants are falling down. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no wonder our pants are falling down. You know why that's true? Because there are lots of unchurched people all around us in our neighborhoods and elsewhere. And we, we we are the hands and feet of Jesus, and so we want to definitely do that. So, And it's not from a lack of institutions, because we have plenty of those. It's, it's, the, it's the personal touch, the relationship building that shows them they have value in Christ, and that's what we're called to do as salt and light. That's right. So uh, look forward to that day and want you to begin telling your people about it, even now. Um, and just, you know, just try to get them excited about the chance to serve together on that day, Saturday. Yeah, one thing I want to introduce in this uh, podcast is a best practice. Uh, I won't waste much of your time, but I read a lot of discipleship books, listen to a lot of discipleship podcasts, and I would really love to share some of that info with you guys. So I was listening to a huddle centered around Steve Gladen as Saddleback's discipleship minister. And, and the question to him was, how do you start when, when you show up with a senior leadership team or with your uh, with your group leaders? How do you start? And he always says, I start with trying to define what we're going to do, what he calls the end in mind. And the end in mind is what is the perfect disciple? What do they ooze? What are they, what, what flows out of their pores when you think of the perfect disciple? And he uses geography as illustration. So for us, let's say Christ resides in your home, because in a very real sense, Christ does as you walk around, um, indwelt by the spirit. Are we guiding our group members towards Williamson County? Are we getting them into Brentwood City? Are we getting them into our particular subdivision? Are we getting them to our street? Or are we setting and casting a vision for our particular house where we're modeling the hands and feet of Jesus, where we're teaching out of our overflow, and where we're living a disciple's life? So we can't expect people to get somewhere if we haven't given them appropriate geographical markers. And so we want to get people into our homes uh, metaphorically. We don't want to just get them into Williamson County. And that really struck me because I wondered, have I defined it very well? So for us here at Brentwood Baptist through Journey On, we define a disciple as one who is in a process of growth toward Christ likeness, such that the actions and deeds of Jesus naturally flow out of us where we live, work, and play. And I want to emphasize that part naturally. The actions and deeds, the words and deeds of Jesus naturally flow out of us because it becomes who we are. So the disciple is one who instinctually, being a new creation, being regenerate, lives the life of Christ and and naturally sets forth the kingdom sort of life that Christ calls us to. So be sensitive to what vision you're casting for your group members. Yeah, it's a good word, Paul. Um, it, I think that it, I think for me, and when we were talking about that earlier this week, is just being laser focused in what we're trying to produce. And uh, I think that's really that's really important. Um, and but but you know, for us as leaders, it's really critically important for us to model that life. You know, for us to be learners, for us to be growing as a disciple of Jesus, and to model for the people that God has brought to us in our groups uh, to show them what the uh, a disciple's life looks like. So um, anyway, I just want to make that challenge. Thank you, Paul, for that for that word uh, from um, 
some stuff that you're learning. It's good stuff. Yeah, got to be constant learners. That's right. Leaders are learners. That's so true. Well, let's jump into our lesson time then. We're in lesson chapter three. Uh, and we are this week, uh, the, the, the title of, of the chapter is The Trinity, Who is God? And we kind of begin this week on three weeks in a row talking about the Trinity. This week is God the Father. Next week it's God the Son, Jesus. And then the third week is God the Holy Spirit or Who is the Holy Spirit? And But this week it's God the Father. And the focal passage that we're going to be uh, unpacking in our group times is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 31. And as I was reading that chapter and taking a look at those particular verses, some of the things that stuck out to me were the transforming truth of God's nature and what God does, understanding God. But but as it relates to this, that God is transcendent. He is infinite, but he's also very personal, very intimate. And I think that's a really important lesson for us us to know, that God indeed is transcendent. He is infinite. He is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or creation in general. Um, He is greater than anything that he has made, anything in all the world. And yet, he is very much in the details of our lives, concerned with the details of our lives. We, We read in the in the uh, passage of scripture, he's uh, this week in Isaiah, just how big God is and and the things that God does and things that that are beyond our comprehension as finite human beings. And yet we read in Matthew chapter six, where, you know, Jesus is telling his disciples, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about what you will eat, uh, what you will wear, because your heavenly father knows that you need them. He, he says in uh, Matthew chapter 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So there's this idea in scripture, Old Testament and new, of God's bigness, but also his um, intimacy, his how personal he is with his creation and particularly his humans. Yeah, Anselm, one of my heroes, defined God as that being then which no greater can be conceived uh, just, if you can think of something greater than you haven't thought of God yet, and I think he's got a great point, but scripture always brings it back home where we follow an incarnated God, a God who took on flesh to come after his people. We have a God who is zealous and jealous to have relationship with us, and the tension between the transcendence and the imminence is a beauty of Christianity, I think. Well, let's jump into this whole idea, Paul, of, of God's transcendence and his imminence. Um, take us through some some teaching points that would be helpful as we uh, begin to think about this whole idea of who is God and some things we can talk about in our life groups this week. Yeah, for me, verse 25 really stuck out. Who will you compare me to or what is my equal? Clearly a rhetorical question because there is nothing. God was in the beginning before anything else, before any matter and energy, time and space, and God brought it all into being. So they're just there aren't comparisons to our God. All metaphors fall short. All symbols and illustrations fall radically short of who our God truly is. Uh, his powers are beyond anything we can imagine, and his knowledge is beyond anything that we can imagine. 
And so he is big. He is infinite. Um, you know, let's let's talk about some of these theological words like transcendence and and some of the things you, that you may look at in the teaching guide or um, maybe do it in your own study. And you know, you and I were talking about that, Paul. How uh, some of those big words are can be confusing, but we shouldn't be scared of them. We need to teach them. Why? Why is that important? That's right. Um, one, because these are the principles that the Bible teaches. And I used to be borderline embarrassed of it and would apologize before I shared certain terms with groups that I was leading and, and teaching. And I think I, I did a disservice to them. We want to use the language and the words that give us the necessary theological fluency to talk rightly about who our God is. And it's not an embarrassment and it's not a flaw to speak precisely about your God. And when we say transcendent, we mean something very particular, that he is the ultimate. He's the axiom and foundation on which everything begins. And when we say eminence, we mean something very particular, that God is actively involved, close, personal, and engaged. So these words are significant, and we need to teach our people what they mean, and they'll become common language. And, and it's edifying language when you start thinking about your God this way in your life, and you're, you're, you're running your experiences up the divine flagpole, so to speak, to see how the divine speaks into your daily life. These words make a big difference on how you understand God's work in your day-to-day, your day-to-day walk. So we've talked about a little bit about God's transcendence, his bigness, his how infinite he is, how he is separated from creation. In a sense, he's not bound by the same rules and the same laws that, that creation has. Uh, he is other, but yet very much involved, very much uh, connected to his creation. He doesn't remove himself to the point where he is um, not involved in those details. I think about the the popular 90s song, probably from one of your favorite artists, Bette Midler. Isn't that right, Paul? No doubt. <laughs> um, you know, if you remember back in the early 90s, she had a song, and in the line in the song, it says something like, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. Some of you may remember that song. It's this idea that there's this God, this this big being, supreme being, who sits up in the heavens looking down on his poor creation, not involved, and just kind of letting them go and do their thing. And and even though there's a, an aspect of, of truth to that and the fact that God is at a distance looking, and you see things equally vividly in all times, uh, which is an amazing truth to, to unpack also. But he's very, but, but also I think the the thing that's wrong about that is that God is very, very involved in our lives. He wants a personal relationship with each person. He's a personable, personal God. And we see that even in the very last, you know, some of the last verses of this chapter, verse 40 in Isaiah. I'm sorry, chapter 40 in Isaiah, verse 31. He says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There's this very sense that God is with us. He's walking beside us. He's very involved. He wants to be involved. He knows us intimately. He can count the number of hairs on our heads. Uh, he loves us that much. And uh, I think that to, to unpack that in your life groups, to talk about God's bigness and yet his intimacy, it, it's just it would be a great conversation to have. Yeah, and with that song first, I think you should probably be in choir on Wednesday nights rather than in our theological roundtables. 
Thank you. Uh, but second, uh, that's the tide of the Matthew 6 passage you read, is that those who seek the kingdom first, those who trust in God receive these things because our God is a God who wants to provide, but he's not a coercive God, not going to impose things upon his creation. He wants authentic meaning, genuine meaning in relationship. And to that end, God draws us, um, comes after us, chases us, but never forces us. And I think those two ties there are very significant. And the image that I think is so important for us to understand as believers is God as shepherd. It's imminent, imminent throughout the Old Testament and New Testament as well. God gathering his sheep, uh, Israelites from captivity. This is what Isaiah is about. Uh, the first 39 chapters are depressing in their own way that judgment's coming and it's not going to be pleasant. But we have a redeemer God who's going to rope us back in. And likewise with Jesus, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, coming to receive his sheep. So Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6, John 10, 7 through 15 are some of the highlight shepherd passages that you could share with your people. That we have a transcendent God that in one sense we can't relate to because he's radically independent, radically other. Nevertheless, that very God is the shepherd that constantly gathers his sheep together and loves them and cares for them. And so this chapter, obviously, as I said earlier in the my prologue, was that, that the, the Trinity, this next three weeks, we're, be, we're going to be talking about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It might be worth in your group time this week to um, talk about the Trinity a little bit. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, holy moly, that is the most amazing, unique uh, doctrine in scripture, how in the world do you unpack that and do it rightly? Well, that's that's a good question. Paul, how would you answer that? And I think it's one of the first questions people think about when we talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is, how do we articulate the Trinity for people? How do I understand it for myself? Because I may not know, but then second, how do I explain it to other people that I'm witnessing to or in an apologetic setting with people of other faiths? Um, we want to guard against tritheism. We don't believe in three separate gods. We don't believe in God the Father is a distinct being, God the Son, distinct being, God the Spirit, distinct being, and those three gods together somehow form our divine counsel or something. So on the one hand, we have tritheism. On the other hand, we want to avoid sort of a, maybe a mundane monotheism, I would say, where these are just different modes or presentations of of God where in the Old Testament, God's revealed his father. In the New Testament, God's revealed his son. In the church age now, God's revealed his spirit. But it's really all the same thing. Well, they're distinct. We see to Jesus' baptism, a voice comes out of heaven. This is my son on whom I'm well pleased. The dove in the, form, the spirit in the form of a dove descends. So we have distinct things there. So how do we articulate it? What we want to say is that we believe in one being, three persons. God is not three in the way that he's one. God is not one in the way that he's three. He's one in his essence and in his nature, but in his persons, he's distinct. The, the, the Father did not die on the cross. The Holy Spirit did not die on the cross. That was Jesus, the Son who died on the cross. I like to think of it that they share a divine soul, that whatever the soul and enduring self is, uh, for us, there's one of those within the Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet they're distinct persons who have distinct actions and distinct wills that all come together in the unified will of, of redeeming a people. 
And so the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, but all three are God. Yeah, and I like to use the language divine. Um, the Chalcedonian creeds is where you'll get a lot of this, the Nicene Creed. I like to say something like they're truly divine. Whatever things, whatever attributes and properties make something divine, Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father all have those, all have those things. Well, let's talk just a second about God's power. Um, God's power, God's knowledge. So we're convinced that God is imminent. He's powerful. How then should we live in light of that, Paul? Yeah, and there's so many attributes that we just can't exhaust them in a podcast. It would take its own series. Uh, a satiety, God's independence, immutability, God's unchangeableness, omnipresence, God's power and knowledge in every part of the universe, omniscience, and so forth. So I want to use God's power, omnipotence, that means all-powerful, that shows up in our chapter here, and also omniscience, God's knowledge, that shows up in this chapter here. And I'll focus on God's power just as an example of, I think, a, a safe and biblical way to think through these attributes. So for me, it's always on a spectrum that the, the Bible gives us data to understand our God and who he is. And so on the on either end of our spectrum, the things we want to reject are a purely coercive power. I mentioned that word earlier. By that, I would mean something similar to our relationship to our government, uh, maybe particularly with respect to our taxes. We don't get a choice. You pay them or you suffer a consequence. You're, you're put in jail. So it's, it's coercive power. It's a forfeiture of your right in a claiming of something of you from a from an authority. And then purely persuasive power would be that God really doesn't have any control at all over us. God just makes mere suggestions. Um, and this is something I think less than a drawing uh, of people. It, it's, it's just a suggesting, uh, broad persuading. Yeah, it'd be great if you would do this. It'd be great if you would do this. And I think that steals some of God's activity from us. So on one end, we have purely coercive power, forceful, totalitarian. On the other end, we get purely persuasive power, merely suggestive. I think the Bible puts us somewhere in the middle of those two, that neither one uh, we do we want to lift up, that we have a God who is sovereign, who is maximally in control of history, and yet who does it in such a way that we are free, and through our free choices, he ensures his exact results that he wills and chooses and it's for the good as reflective of his nature. Some might say that God is so big, so unchangeable, that I, that we as humans really are very insignificant. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the opposite is true, isn't it? As you think about God's transcendence, uh, it, it gives special meaning, significance to his creatures. Yeah, that's right. And it's one way I love to teach about God's transcendence and eminence and his relationship to us is the bigger and more radical and more awesome you can make God out to be, the smaller we seem to feel. And I think Isaiah hits this by calling us grasshoppers. We're like grasshoppers uh, with respect to the divine. And so God just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we seem more and more worthless, so more and more unworthy. And then once God's as big as we can maximally get him for some person, then we say that very God wants you in his family, wants you to be a part of his family as an adopted child. And I mean, just think of your favorite celebrity or whomever that you would never have a chance or even know how to talk to. You just stutter through introductions or whatever else. And then that person says, you know, come join my family. And that's what it's like with our God, the the greatest prize in all the universe, the the, the being worth the most. Nothing can compare to the worth of our God. And that's the being that wants to love you and have you and his family for all eternity. And that gives meaning, that gives purpose, that gives value. 
what what the world's looking for. Yeah. So what's at stake with this particular uh, doctrine, would you say, about God's nature, God's sovereignty, God's glory? I think God's holiness, holy understood as radical, radically other than us. So if God's not transcendent, then uh, he, he becomes something really no different than the material stuff we encounter on a daily basis. Just a really awesome form of it. Maybe something like the Greek gods who were not necessarily immortal and had these fleeting passions and quirks and so forth. But again, like you've already mentioned, we push transcendence too far. And then what significance do we have? What do we matter? It's precisely because God is imminent and chooses to relate to us that we then get supreme value. So I think purpose, meaning, value, and God's core nature are at stake in understanding this. And that's going to be reflective on how we understand ourselves. So therefore, so when we wrap this up and we're thinking about these transforming truths this week as we as we talk about God. What's the so what? I mean what what are some of the applicational points that we might could make with our people uh, as we unpack this, as we read the scripture, as we take a look at the scripture. And I would I would encourage you obviously to do that is talk about the context a little bit. Do your research. Talk about the context that he uh, Dr. Didway, the, the writer of this, talks a little bit about the context of it on page 30, kind of the middle of the page. And then, you know, obviously read chapter 40, talk talk about it, maybe hit some high points, some things that maybe illustrate his, his transcendence, but also some things that illustrate his holiness, or, I mean, his, his uh, uh, intimacy with his people. Uh, so obviously want to encourage that. But what, what do you think, Paul, are some just some basic takeaways that we get that, that that we should therefore live out in our lives today, 21st century, Middle Tennessee, Brimley Baptist Church. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons that theology in general and doctrine of God in particular is one of my favorite subjects to think about is because when our God is understood to have all of these attributes, traits, and character, then it directly impacts how I understand my life. So we have a God that's imminent. Uh, we have a God of all power, all knowledge, who is active in our lives, seeking our good, that affords me to live with some boldness and confidence that whatever God is bringing about in my life, I can trust that it's for the good, for his glory in which I'm most satisfied. And I can be confident and I can be bold and I can be radical because I fear no thing because my God has control over the situation. My God has full knowledge of the situation and my God is imminently present in the situation. We don't have the God of the deists who just winds up the world and lets it flow out. And we don't have the God of the panentheists. I'll let you guys look up that word yourself, who is evolving with the world, learning as it goes. We have a God, Alpha and Omega, knows the beginning from the end, knows the end from the beginning. And with that, we can live in boldness because we're on the winning side. None can compare to our God. And so that should strike out all fear and should give, should embolden us to live the life that God has called us to live. And, uh, man, what, a, what an amazing privilege. You know, the more we learn about this God we serve, this God we worship, the more our love for him should grow. And that's my prayer. That's our prayer for you as you study and as you prepare, but also for your people uh, that you lead in a life group. That um, that as you are teaching and facilitating conversation this week that they too will begin to see how big and how personal God is and and feel privileged to belong to him, to belong in his family. 
and seek to live a life that, uh, that, that reflects the truths that we talk about in the lesson. So excited for how this is going to turn out. Excited for the stories that, that we hope that will emerge uh, after this week. And um, look forward to hearing those things. Paul, any, any last second tidbits? Uh, we worship an awesome God. And we should be bold in our prayers and bold in our actions. Great word to end on there, man. <laughs> well, thank you, leaders, for tuning in this week. And we'll see you again next week. Praying for you. And uh, thankful for all of your work, ministry, and leadership that you provide in your career. See you next week.